Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with legendary jazz pianist, composer, and educator, Rand Blake. His style is quite unique, combining blues, gospel, classical, and film noir influences into an innovative and dark jazz sound. His career includes over 40-plus recording credits on jazz albums, along with more than four-plus decades of teaching jazz at the New England Conservatory of Music. We got into that and aspects of his career along with a few albums. One is A-Side Records' release of previously unheard music from the revered adventurous duo vocalist Gene Lee and Rand with recordings from 1966 to 67. And he talked about an album called Eclipse Orange, and he teamed up with the great Claire Ritter, and it's their first duo outing as third-stream pianists weaving together their singular voices in the celebration of Thelonious Monk's 100th birthday. He's an enormously interesting man, so please get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. Wonderful. Hey, Rand, thank you for taking a minute today for Neon Jazz. It's an honor and a pleasure. Well, it's wonderful to be with you, Joe, in Kansas City, the great place for warm weather. Yes. <laughs> we are hoping that happens, that the groundhog comment is out. So what I want to do is I want to talk about a couple of albums, one, one with Claire Ritter, and I, I really want to talk also about um, this release with, uh, with Miss Lee, uh, the, the, the recordings from 66 to 67, Talk to me about this project. Give me kind of, I know you've had a long relationship, a long working relationship with her. This has to be really nice to see all of this kind of come back out after all these years. Really do to Aaron Hartley and, of course, to the original people that set it up, Elias Kistelink and Florence Derlenois, who really introduced me to Belgian radio. As you pointed out, Jean and I knew each other for many years and would work. She loved rehearsing, and we had no immediate plans for performances. This happened way before our release. And uh, every now and then we would take a weekend off, but it was steady, really, 40 times a year. Over a period of years, uh, both practicing at Bard College and on 113th Street in New York, City, going through repertoire from Bob Dylan, Ray Charles, Thelonious Monk, Julian Priester, spirituals on Gene's behalf, and she also is a composer, and I've written things. That time in American history, when this was released, when you recorded it, was quite unique. There was a lot of um, just just a lot of things going on in the world, you know, and it's the same thing that's going on now. What themes that you were going after at that time are reverberating now? Do, do As much as things change, they stay the same. Can you impart some wisdom on that notion? I think the big thing was racism. And I remember Jean's tears on a flight back to the United States uh, when hearing about the four young girls in the Birmingham church being killed. And uh, there were, of course, other problems, but really we focused on racism quite a bit. And, of course, in some quarters, black power had come in. There could be a few optimistic things happening, but I don't know, seem to be tragic times, and as we have right now and so many things are still present. And Jean and I would spend, we had the time to reflect together 
So we would, of course, rehearse what key are we going to be in, who's going to do a solo here. But we really focused on the political climate. Even some pieces that supposedly are happy had some bitterness. Uh, Tambourine Man had many implications. Some things like Julian Priester's retribution, it's right on the table uh, what's happening. And, of course, Jean and I both loved Abby Lincoln, who's quite a leader. She and Max Roach, I think Charlie Hayden, so many people were speaking up. This is my question to you now, and I guess guess this is my question on a personal level as you look back on that time period. If you could take yourself right now and give yourself advice then during that period where this was recorded, now that you've lived all this life, what advice would you give yourself? At the time, I thought I was doing my share to combat racism, even though I'm not a poet and a political leader. Now I realize how ineffectual perhaps some of my attempts were uh, because my music didn't speak to the world. It really almost didn't matter to society what my thinking goals were, my political goals Martin Luther King was a headliner. He was to die uh, a, a year after we returned, April 4th, 1968. There was a big riot in Boston that time. I think uh, the narrowness also of musical taste, and people didn't seem to dig history of the music. Now I do feel there is a, a more open climate for offbeat music, but still people don't go back and cherish history and the ideas. Maybe could we have communicated better? Should we have written better concert notes and said a few more words? Were some of our meetings hidden? Would I would I change some things there? This is now the area of mid-60s. Violence was beginning to uh, perpetuate itself. It was a very discouraging period, and now I sometimes think things are worse now. You know, the one thing that was emblematic of that time, and I'm, I'm younger, I, I grew up in the 80s, but I've always revered the 60s because it, it seems as though during that time the artistic voice was just as powerful, if not more powerful, than the politicians that were pushing policies that were making our world the way it was. So my question to you is this, now with the artistry that we have in the world, is it just as important for artists to put their voice and to make some kind of social change through their voice with what's going on in the world today? I think more so. Our columnists throughout the country often uh, mention who's dating who or who's at a gala party, and uh, the political message has to be stronger I know a couple of actresses, more than a couple, have spoken at the Academy Awards, and uh, Spike Lee certainly gave a powerful address. Uh, It still doesn't seem to be enough, Joe. So I'm going to switch gears here a little bit. I wanted to focus on another album, uh, Eclipse Orange with Claire Ritter. Um, This just seems like a fun project. seems like you really have a good time when you, uh, you know, collaborating with Claire. Is that true? Wonderful uh, uh, comrade and artist herself and composer. Talk to me about 
the project. You come together. It's a celebration of Monk's 100th birthday. What do you want the listener that gets this album to get out of it? A wider appreciation of Thelonious Monk, although really he is a legend in history. I don't know if we enhanced it. I know for Claire it was very important to celebrate the work of painters. And I was a big admirer of Vera da Silva, the Portuguese painter who escaped from Portugal, the tyranny there, moved to Paris. Her obituary came out about 15 years ago. That was another purpose. Claire and I, even though many rooms at New England Conservatory of Music, which is this marvelous school that I've been uh, spending more than 50 years of my life, the school made it possible for us to rehearse there, guide us, but often there were not rooms with two pianos. But at least some of Claire's pieces have been uh, like in between in my horizon for years. Others were newer, and it was a little bit of a scramble to catch up. I think Claire's label Zoni has been so important, uh, and she has recorded so many people like Dominic Ede, and particularly a wonderful singer from Greece, Eleni O'Donnell. And I think uh, Claire wanted to celebrate uh, North Carolina, the other musicians there, and uh, it was a chance for her family to take part and see what we were doing with each other for the past 20 years, even if we didn't have two pianos in a room and even if we didn't meet as often as I did with Jean. I think it was quite a success. You've been at this game for decades and decades. You've been all over and played with so many people. Have you seen a, a, enough momentous, achievements in the world of jazz, I mean, even as an educator, you see it from a different perspective than a performer. Is there a lot of good that's been going into jazz over the decades? Do you see us at a good point in 2019? There's wonderful music being made today. As great as some of it is, it is not Monk, Mingus, Abby Lincoln, uh, another singer who should be remembered, Chris Connor, and some of the gospel performers like Mahalia Jackson and Ray Charles came out with great stuff. And in the 70s, we had Al Green. And many, of course, many of us were in the shadow of the great Billie Holiday. And we also admired Max Roach, uh, Gunther Schuller's experiments in Third Stream, as well as his symphonic compositions and the world of George Russell. He was to be appreciated again in the 80s with the African bead game. So there were uh, very exciting uh, developments. And, of course, at that period, we looked back on earlier music, and I know Louis Armstrong had a song. I'm not sure I have the exact title, but it was uh, Being Black. And, of course, Ellington, like Brown and Beige, even though he gave some of it optimistic flavoring, it still stated the point. So we had a history we looked at, it, and we also wanted to look what was happening right now in the 60s. As it changed, I feel some of the music, the development of Internet makes music much more accessible. So in one way, I noticed there's an appreciation of the audience that might not have been there in the 60s, but on the, on the other hand, very few people have developed their musical memories 
there's so much going on, it's even hard for me to concentrate on specific music when uh, I'm given uh, 30 or 40 things, I won't say a week, but about 50 or 60 things a month to listen to. So it's exploding, and people no longer want to collect albums. And again, uh, there are pluses, like you can press a button and get things that you want to hear, but there's so, so much. There's many a good music that's good but not great, but it's not bad, but it does take a lot of room, and we don't seem to have, the, and I'm guilty of this too, we don't go back to history enough to really explore the artists and the intentions, the political, literary, cinemagraphic uh, roots. We're in such a hurry, and recording sessions have deadlines. Well, so did George Avakian when making the newest sound around, but it, the, it seems much quicker, the pace now. And is it going into our long-term memories? And that uh, reminds me of what I do do at the conservatory, where I instill melodies, harmonies, rhythms in a group of songs uh, per semester uh, that are forgotten songs, mostly things that have been overlooked. So whether it's the Silvers or for jazz people to hear the Shostakovich 10th Symphony, I try to get people to really dig in. Uh, sometimes it uh, is not successful, at other times greatly so. You know, you're in a very unique position at your age and with your experience of kind of protecting this jazz torch that's going forward. And you have a lot of memories and you have a lot of experiences with a lot of players. My question is this. I'm always interested with cats like you that are veterans that have been around so long. You know, you're celebrating the music of Monk, and you are in that era, too, of just being there making music. Do you think Monk and Coltrane and guys like this were cognizant that they were doing something that was going to last this long and gain so much luster as the years went on? I don't think I knew... Thelonious Monk and Nelly and the family, the uh, niece Jackie, Toots the son, and Boo Boo, uh, Barber, the daughter. I knew that Monk had confidence. Mingus did. Uh, wrote. I'm not sure they were aware or they never spoke of it, but again, I was. I mentioned I knew them, and Mingus had been could be difficult, angry, but he once asked me to join the band. So I think maybe Mingus knew there was something going on. I really can't speak for Coltrane. I met him with, through Gunther Schuller once. I think, hopefully, by the time he died, which was, I think he died early summer 1967, if I'm not mistaken, I really can't. I can guess that perhaps he knew he was achieving um, great things after Crescent came out, and but it's hard to speak with knowledge. I don't think today people are, or most people that I talk to, think about what what's going to happen for their role in history. And of course, I'm so besides wanting to keep my ear out, I'm also trying to bring the music back to young people, but also film noir, the films I do courses, and they are appreciated more and more. But people, uh, I don't remember being as busy as students are today and musicians 
always musicians had to scramble for work. Often uh, you would have an artist doing a week's booking at a place, and you, you weren't necessarily always a big name, and that seems to have passed by. So I feel we've really lost something since the 60s. We've lost intimacy with the yeah, artists. Absolutely. So at this point in your life, with as, as many years as you have, not only as a teacher, uh, but as a performer and a recording artist, are you happy with where you're at today? Well, I do particularly love my work the New England Conservatory for the 51, 52 years. I see some marvelous changes and young people uh, graduating with confidence, uh, only to be shattered a few years out of school, paying debts for their education and not finding the work that they want. So this is very tragic on myself through people like Aaron Hartley and the marvelous uh, health of Anne Braithway, an incredible publicist. There are better things happening for me. I may be in China next year. I have a biography being written, and I have a film being made, so there are very positive things. Will they be temporal? Will they be cherished? I wonder not with many artists that uh, who also can be great, but they they seem to appease the appetites of the listeners more than I do. So I feel very vulnerable, fragile, and I also feel very optimistic for my contribution. I like that answer. So it's very clear and evident that you love jazz. You've, you've dedicated your life to it. Very much and include the... Uh, music between Ornette Colvin and Aretha Franklin and the wonderful George Russell. I, and I love the cream of bebop, how I wish I could play it, but uh, I love the borders of jazz. What is happening uh, with soul music, R&B, uh, some rap, but particularly when it gets back to with the singer doing melisma and... Uh, I'm sometimes discouraged that people have not heard the past enough, so I wander back and forth between optimism and disappointment. I guess that, that's another part of, of, of you as a, as a teacher. Is that something that you're trying to do with the students is give them an active appreciation, maybe a longer-term memory with some of these things? That is what I'm trying to do. Sometimes the students find it challenging and may wish to work with the younger instructors who have big headline world following. Uh, there are, though, very positive signs that the students are digging into the music and there's been really some interest that somebody would go back and discover the repertoire of Mahalia Jackson, uh, who, except for her uh, date with uh, Duke Ellington in Newport is, is totally forgotten by uh, the so-called jazz world now. There isn't the intolerance there used to be. You had yeah. to be especially Bud Powell or uh, a Chopin, modern Chopin Copeland. There's now room for the music that, uh, that's uh, between the cracks. So one of, the, one of the best educators for anybody, whether you're a musician or you're a fan, is shows that you've seen. Early on in your life, 
what jazz show did you see that really got your brain going, thinking this this is it? When I was growing up, jazz at the Philharmonic, it would come to Hartford to see here Charlie Parker once in my life live because he died, as you know, at the home of the at the hotel suite and the Coconut Water Rothschild. But, but to grow up hearing Ella, then when I was a little bit older, to go to New York and hear Mingus, Mary Lou Williams of the George Russell unit, that was a little bit later. And to uh, cherish different kinds of music that might not be, wouldn't have an identity in jazz per se, like some of Gunther Schuller, the post-Charles Ives influence, what the beautiful, terrific blues from Chess Records and those early Aretha Franklin sessions when she joined Atlantic. There was so much out of there. And, of course, the incredible teaching of Gunther Schuller, who I studied informally with until I was 50. Uh, that meant maybe only four lessons a year, but it was true. And he would point out the musical uh, things that I should be paying attention to. In the last 10 years of his life, he had to narrow down, which was very good, so that he could compose pieces like Dreamscape. I still miss a curiosity of uh, crossover genres, but there is a lot more tolerance now, and it was so great being part of that scene and working with uh, dedicated teachers like Gunther, Oscar Peterson, Mildred Falls, the pianist with Mahalia Jackson, so many encounters. And to think some of these people I knew firsthand, even slightly. You know, one thing I like to ask musicians, one of, one of more common questions that's been around for a long time is, what award did you win that surprised you the most? Not the one that you liked most, but for you, I think I want to tailor it a little bit differently and ask you this. What happened in your career? What event happened in your career that maybe at the time didn't go over that well, but now that you look back, you think, man, that was, that, that was meant to happen for a reason. Well, I can cite specific influences and approximate dates that were influential to me. Do you want me to make a, a bit of a list now, or is that too, too long an answer? Whatever's comfortable to satiate the question, I guess I just want to know what turning points for someone like you that's such a titan in the world of jazz really formed who you are and made you who you are today? I think that, number one, it would be discovering early gospel music, uh, spiritual music in Springfield, and in North Hartford, the Church of God in Christ Pentecostal Church, with Bishop I.L. Jefferson and the brilliant composer Hubert Powell. Then the constant listening. When I was a kid, Motown had not come up Yep, but there were people like Ruth Brown, and I could dig back to B.B. King, John Lee Hooker. I didn't really, at that time, get into deeply the world of bebop. I never loved uh, Benny Goodman as I should have. I liked Duke, but I didn't really explore it, and I wish I had spent more time with Louis Armstrong. Okay. So that was number two. Number three would be going to a movie, Spiral Staircase, loving some of the film music, in spite of some of the cliches when things were romantic. And I could list a, a great many films like one very important one is Dr. Mabuza, M-A-B-U-S-E, 
which New England Conservatory will celebrate presidential weekend next year. Then I think, again, the teachers I work with from Janet Wallace, Lloyd Stoneman in Springfield, to Ray Casarino in Hartford, to Gunther, George Russell, Max Roach, Bill Evans, all of these people due to the Lenox School of Jazz I had. Uh, some people would credit me with some enthusiasm, but they uh, could be extremely critical. Boy, did I work at times. Of course, there were times I slept off. Then I would say my trip, I don't know if we're at number four or five, my trip to Greece, where I found, uh, I thought the intolerance was American racial uh, injustice with the coup d'etat taking place April 20th, 1967. I woke up and I began learning some of the music of Mikas Theodorakis, and I, I started a society called Music for Greek Freedom. It only really lasted a year and a half, but uh, through that I met uh, many wonderful people and got to explore uh, music uh, uh, very unknown to me. And then there was an incredible experience with Hank Snetsky, who is co-chair with Eden, uh, Summer McAdams, the third stream now called Contemporary Improvisation Department, to learn about Jewish music, klezmer, uh, old pieces like Vilna, and to really enhance my musical vocabulary there. I never could really be 100% that type of a musician, whereas, uh, but I, I tried to dig into the roots there, and I got to know five very important styles, even though I never got five styles of Jewish music, even though I never accomplished them in uh, the, the most persuasive historical perspective. And then I guess just my years at the conservatory ceiling scene, now all these kinds of terrorism, maybe still uh, a lack of trying to come to terms with people that don't really go back to the 40s and know who Herbie Nichols and other wonderful people were of that period. So I do feel blessed with the life of having met so many people, traveled to so many places, and more and more now as you get my age, you reflect a lot. So probably if we were talking a month from now, I, I would say a lot of the same words, but I might have uh, one bit more of enthusiasm in one project and one bit less in another. But I do feel that I have accomplished something and I've had some great management, so I think I'm holding my own, even if it's still limited compared to the brilliance and the fame of Danilo Perez, Jason Moran, and so many other people who are out there who are very fabulously talented. Well, nothing quite outshines wisdom, that's for sure. That answer, there was a lot of groundwork on that answer. Thank you for being so elaborative. And you covered a lot of dots that I was trying to connect here. And, and, and I guess it all funnels down to this. This is my final question for you that kind of gets to the gooey center of, of who we are as humans and in the middle of that soul. There's notes that surround everything that you do and all of these things, and that's fine. But sometimes it's that essence. It's the reason Charlie Parker blew that horn the voice we look for that Miles talked about. My question to you is this. Everyone has a version, an interpretation, some vision of who they think you are. Your family, your friends, your students, 
and all of these people around you, but you know yourself best. Tell me, who do you think you are? First, I'm an appreciator, and I do want to call your audience's attention to Alona Tip, who's an incredible singer from uh, Kansas City, uh, who's making her way in Boston and New Hampshire. This is very, though, to get really to the heart of the question, I wonder if I could get your perspective, because I'm not sure I can put these this in a really pithy paragraph. What would you say, Joe? You know, I would say that you're a deeply introspective, avant sort of soul that's dedicated your life probably equally as much to performing as you have education. I think sometimes folks like you get, I wouldn't say pigeonholed is the word, but you tend to get in this realm where they know you as a performer. But I know you folks that I talk to that have been in education for a while, but that gets you just as revved up, or if not more, to pass that torch and knowledge onto the future generations. Um, but I see you in both of those lights. I see you as an innovator. I see you as a tireless uh, devotee to the jazz craft, and that's who you are. That's what you've done. But you've also been very studious about crossing blends. One of your very first uh, trademarks that you talked about was discovering gospel. And there's a lot of genres. You haven't just been in one. You've been in multiple, very multifaceted. You're a multidimensional kind of cat, and, and you've dedicated your life to jazz, and I find it enormously honorable. Well, thank you so much for those words, Joe. It's been a, such a pleasure being on your show, and I wish the best for Kansas City and for you. Thank you very much. So this is for you, uh, Joe, and I should say that you'll be craving cold weather next August. I'm going to the other side of the room, and I'll okay. do two minutes of piano. All right, I'm uh, going to play a piece called Memphis. This is Ram Blake speaking to Kansas City and United States audiences. And this, uh, I'm going to make it very uh, condensed. I'll start with a little of the melody where I'm thinking of Al Green and what might be happening on Memphis April 4th uh, at the Lorillard Motel, or I guess hotel, and then I will uh, do a five-note theme where the people are coming up and one man has a gun that will kill Dr. King. And that's what I will, uh, I will, it will be two minutes so that there will be abrupt changes and I won't really be able to develop a thought, but I hope you and the audience like it. Beautiful. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York City, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Rand for his time, his stories, and his cool. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, 
go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.